it's been a while, but everything's just stocks. I really believe in the compound interest, uh, mutual funds, and just slow and steady will rent, win the race and going really uh, just it's kind of a set it and forget it crockpot mentality of I'm not trying to get rich tomorrow, just kind of let it grow over time. There's so many different ways to make income. I just, I know what works for me, what I'm comfortable with, what I'm safe with, but there are so many ways out here to make money. 401k loans and you're paying it back. You think you'll pay it back. You're paying yourself interest. And then the company gets bought by another company and it's due in 30 days. And you're like, man, I can't pay this back. So all these things that you think are going to happen good for you. And then it's another obstacle in the road. But I know if I can do it, anybody can do it. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 254. I want to start off this week by addressing a listener question. It actually ties in very nicely, too, to the episode that we have today. The question is, how do millionaires decide to use a Roth or not use a Roth IRA? Specifically, how do they think about the tax rates today and into the future, especially with looming RMD requirements and paying taxes on the growth? First of all, great question. I think this is something personally that I think doesn't get discussed enough. Uh, in the personal finance community and, and possibly something that probably will get discussed more and more as some of these baby boomers get closer to retirement. So just to give a, a brief history, so William Roth was the senator from Delaware that introduced, I guess he call it the sponsor of the legisla- legislation creating the, the Roth IRA. And the Roth IRA came about as part of the Taxpayer Relief Act of 1997. So if we think back, 1997, a lot of people probably didn't really start adopting these, uh, you know, to any significant degree until probably the early 2000s. And so even let's just say somebody was in their early 50s at that point, it doesn't, it, it probably doesn't give them quite enough time to really accumulate enough to the point that those RMDs were, you know, are are looming, right? So I think we're really discussing, at least in a historical sense of this thing becoming, you know, the the Roth IRA and these looming RMDs, uh, you know, post-retirement age, we really don't start to probably, I don't know, generate a level of interest that gets, you know, these things, you know, significantly on somebody's radar, uh, where maybe they would want to be using a, a you know, having the option of a, of a Roth IRA. I know we've talked to several guests on our podcast that have significant portion in traditional, and part of it was, hey, I didn't have an option for a Roth. And so, you know, and I didn't really know much about it until, you know, it was almost too late type thing. And then, you know, doing a Roth conversion ladder, sometimes if you're not skilled, uh, you know, and understand the, the rules or have an advisor helping you, sometimes those can be, you know, scary, create tax bills, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I think to, to this point, this topic isn't discussed uh, as frequently as it should be. Now, having said that, we've seen, you know, millionaire strategies all over the board on this. From a personal preference to you know actually trying to dig into the actual tax savings and and what that looks like 
And the guest that we have on today, actually, uh, his name's Jermaine. He's got a net worth of 1.7 civil engineer, and his wife is an elementary school teacher. And we discussed this because he is actually going through this where he is going to and has done some conversions and he's you know 50 years old and he talked about going through and, and paying some of those tax bills. So real interesting topic. Uh, you know, there, I don't think there's one way or one right answer on this, uh, but definitely something to be aware of, especially if you're, you know, a super saver, so to speak, to make sure that you've got your allocation you know, the way that you want it and the way it works for you. And, and to uh, you know, keep that in mind as you, you know, begin your investing journey or in the middle of your investing journey, or maybe even at the end of your investment, investment journey, because there could be some significant uh, tax savings if you do things, uh, you know, properly. Last week, we had Grace. She had a net worth of $1.7 500K, which was in home equity. She used to work for the government, but stays home with her children now and has her own Etsy, Etsy shop. Without any further delay, let's get into the episode this week with Jermaine. Jermaine, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Sure, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jermaine, 50 years old, been married for 16 years. I have three adult children, two daughters and a son. My oldest daughter is 33 years old. I have two grandchildren, uh, two boys, grandsons, ages three and five. Been a civil engineer for the last 21 years by degree and in my profession. And my wife is an elementary school teacher of 13 years and first and second graders. So, And what is your net worth today? Right now, our net worth is between 1.6 and 1.7. And how is that broken up? Well, right now we have IRAs over 800, 816,000 in IRAs, Roth, 140, 186 in Roth. And my wife has a 403B, $43,000. We have a bridge account, $78,000 and 529 plans for a niece and my two grandsons that equals 47,000. We have a pay for home, 370,000. Awesome. So let's let's walk through a couple of those accounts, specifically the ones that you've got tax advantaged. Are those invested in equities in the market? Yes, everything's an equity. I'm 90% stocks. Been investing since I was probably in my mid 20s. When I was age 25, I had purchased a home back when I was still in college. I had also been big in investment clubs uh, back in the the late late 90s. Motley Fool, those kind of things. I remember those two guys when they both had hair. So that's how long I'd been dealing with Motley Fool. So I'd, I'd really just been into <laughs> investments and everything else. So, uh, but yes, it's uh, it's been a while, but everything's just stocks. I really believe in the compound interest, uh, mutual funds, and just slow and steady will rent, win the brace and going really uh, just kind of a set it and forget it crockpot mentality of, I'm not trying to get rich tomorrow. Just kind of let it grow over time. Yeah. So have you kept the same allocation basically from, from the very beginning when you started investing and, and reading Motley Fool and everything? Yeah, pretty much, guys. Just everything has been aggressive, 80 to 90% and aggressive growth. Uh, but just been putting everything into Fidelity, have a Fidelity fund. So as jobs turned over or 401ks rolled over, just dropped everything into a Fidelity account. I've been purchasing um, FXAIX, which is Fidelity's 500 index fund, FCNX, Fidelity Contra fund, Dodge and Cox Dodge 
stock, which is DODGX, but just everything is just mutual funds, stocks. And I, I had an interesting um, spiel about my one rollover is where the company got purchased. So I had to, I was forced to roll over my uh, 401k. And at the time, back in February 2016, it was $180,000. And I put it into these 11 or 12 Fidelity mutual funds. And in five years, it's grown to over you know $570,000, which is about 20, 21% over five years. And I thought that was interesting because at the same time, back in February 2016, Amazon was $507 a share. So if I would have put all the money into Amazon, it would have been 1.268 million. <laughs> so it's just really funny how the market works. And if you get on the correct uh, stock or the correct company and how it could really just take your profits really high in the air. Yeah. And if you would have bought the Dogecoin in the set, instead of the DOG, right, you would have been <laughs> to the moon and back, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I could have rolled with Bezos. Yeah, exactly. He went to the, that's crazy. So walk us through, I mean, going back into the, to the your 20s and the 30s, how much were you setting aside into these tax protected accounts and investments and how much were you setting aside of your income for the future? Yeah, I think what happened is as I was younger, I was still in school, still had bills, uh, still working and just doing all of the, as Dave would say, stupid tax. I had a car payment. I would work full time. I went to school at night. Then I transferred over to the university. So I did community college, transferred to the university, did the university for three years, graduated. And then it was just always investing uh, into like Home Depot, Coca-Cola, and um, any of those that had the drip accounts back then where you could do a minimum investment of $25 a month. And I still have my old ledgers where I think I tried to do $25 a check or every two weeks. Once I got into my job, once I graduated, I always tried to put money into my uh, 401k it was always free money. You know, my parents had always taught me that you want to invest in that. You want to, you, you, there, you will turn 30, you will turn 40, you will turn 50, you will turn 60, you will retire, you will turn seven. So there is this, unfortunately, yes, there is this progression where you have to save for the future because it's coming, <laughs> whether you like it or not, it's coming and you got to have that plan. So one thing I think my parents also instilled in me is just work ethic. And my parents both had pensions. So my, you know, my dad worked for community college for 30 years. My mom was federal aviation government for 30 years. They had pensions. They were set. But they told me as times are changing, you're going to have to save on your own. There won't be pensions by the time you get older. Or um, They just they had that vision. They just knew these kind of, you know, and I'm a guy from Michigan. So I had grandfathers and uncles that worked at GM and aunts. And we used to call it generous motors when we lived in Michigan. We didn't call it general motors. It was generous <laughs> motors just because of all the benefits that they got and all the money they made. And, you know, that was that true middle class of just working and putting money away and 
if you only had a high school education, you could still buy a home, send your kids to college, buy a car, go on vacation. So it, it, it was really instilled in me early on that you just had to invest little by little and put money away. And I just do remember every time getting a job or once I'm starting out in my career, just putting away 6%. And, you don't, you know, my dad would always tell you, you won't even see it. It just, it comes right off the top. So when you get paid, it's already in there. So there was just always this mindset of you have to put money away. You will get older and you will need money for retirement. Yeah. So real quick, Jermaine, on the allocation, I know you mentioned a couple of funds just just barely to Jace. Is most of it most of it are in those funds and, and mainly index funds, I assume? Yeah, just index funds. Most of those funds, I basically look at, there used to be a money magazine, smart money magazine. I think the money magazine is still digital publication. And then there's Kiplinger's personal finance. And Kiplinger's personal finance had their Kiplinger 25 funds. And they just have these 25 funds that are no load, so it was really more or less of having a, a subscription to this Kiplinger's magazine and just kind of looking through there and, oh, yeah, I'll get this one. And, oh, it's done uh, 14% over 10 years and this and that. So I, I, I really just didn't I kind of have other people do the research for me, kind of look at them, check their Morningstar ratings and just go ahead and dump the money in there and set it and forget it tried to let it go, uh, tried to not pull money from there. You know, I think that's a, a lot um, to where I talk to a lot of my younger guys now and they're pulling money out of their 401ks and they're buying real estate and other guys are buying Dogecoin and Bitcoin and my son, he's into that stuff. And I was just like, man, you know, there's so many different ways to make income. I just... I know what works for me, what I'm comfortable with, what I'm safe with, but there are so many ways out here to make money. So when you, yeah, agreed. So when you sent this form, just for our listeners, we have every millionaire that comes on fill out a, a form here, just so we are a little bit acquainted before we start the show. But you filled out this form exactly two months ago, and your net worth, at least on here, either you're being modest or you've had a good couple months, was 1.4. Yes, I've had so a good couple you, of months. Yeah, so you're up a couple hundred thousand in the last couple months here? <laughs> yeah, up a couple hundred. Uh, and I just really, I started looking at everything, you know, your cars, everything else, pay for vehicles. I had a stockpile account that I buy dividend stocks at about 17000 in there. Uh, everything has just continued to grow. And I'm just starting now to kind of gather everything together. And I just looked at it and said, wow. This, uh, this is doing pretty good. So it's a good time. Yeah. Wow. Good for you. So you mentioned just, just barely here, you put in 6% savings. Was that always the case since you started working? You would just save 6%? I at least did the minimum to get the match. I was always told about getting the free money. I do remember in 2008, I was able to put in 15%. So I was able to pretty much, quote unquote, max out my retirement. And that was the same year the housing market hit. And I want to say the stock market dropped 32% that year. And that was the first year I got to 15 <laughs> Yeah, welcome to the market. <laughs> and I was so excited. I said, man, you know, I finally did it. And I don't know if it was, you know, 15 or 16,000, whatever it was. I didn't meet the 
the dollar amount, but at least for the percentage amount, I met the 15%, which with that company was a max you could do. And I just remember seeing 401, 201k and it just kept dropping. And I was like, man, what am I doing? But you stay the course. And one thing I was going to say too, I've lived through the tech boom 2000s. I've lived through 9-11, lived through the housing market, lived through COVID. So once COVID hit, I said, oh, it is really time to buy something, you know, and listen in to Warren Buffett and, you know, buy some stocks and do this and, and try this. So I did, you know, try to pick up a couple of things and, and see how they would grow. So uh, definitely picked up Hertz at like a dollar a share and picked up AMC at about $4 a share. Macy's was about $5 a share. American Airlines, 6 or $7 a share. And all that stuff has tripled over the year. So you can really kind of grow that money. But it's just always knowing that the market is a living, breathing thing. It will take its dips, but then it will come back. It will always come back. And that's why everybody has their money in it. Yeah, that was when we were chatting before the show, uh, before we started recording, excuse me, you said that even with all the mistakes you've made, you'll still make it, right? That was kind of your message before the show. I thought that was good. Yeah, just tons of stupid tax. I mean, lease vehicles, student loans that took me 12 years to pay off. I had a $54,000 student loan and it took me 12 years to pay that off. And that's just... You know, just when you think of Dave Ramsey and his principles and, you know, most people get out of debt in seven years. You know, I was doing Dave ish. I'm listening to Susie Orman and then I'm doing my own thing. So I have this whole melting pot of my financial plan. And uh, you just look at some of the things uh, you do getting um, not getting a 15 year mortgage and things like that. When I told you I owned a home at 25, it was $43,000. I sold it at 31 for probably about 60, 61,000. I remember getting a direct deposit of $17,000 check. And to this day, I know I bought a TV. I know I bought a bed. I think there was a five changer CD, DVD thing that was hot and new back then. But I can't tell you what I did with the rest of the money. And I was just like, man, you know, those, those kind of things where you look back as you get older and you know you had student loans. You could have put that money on your student loans and paid them off even faster um, or not gotten a lease vehicle, purchase a vehicle, those kind of things. So I've, I've done, as Dave says, stupid with zeros on the end big time. And you, <laughs> you still make it. You can still make it. Yeah. So student loans, I assume that that means you went to college? What'd you study? Civil engineering? Civil engineering, bachelor's of science. Yes. Okay. And then let's, let's go into your life story here a little bit and then we'll kind of keep going with the investment later, but how did it all start? What what was your first job out of school? How how much were you making? What was your career path? Yes. So I got out of school probably 99 and my first job was $38,000. And back in the day, Civil engineering was kind of one of the lower end. There's mechanical, industrial, chemical, um, all these different engineers, uh, electrical that you would you would have. So it always showed these books you read and stuff that it was kind of on the lower end. So 
I figured 38,000 and I owe about 50,000 in debt. Okay, I'll be able to pay it off over time. Well, I worked about two or three years, uh, moved out of Michigan, moved down to Florida and uh, definitely loved the weather. I was done with the snow. I just had to move after I graduated college. And when I got down to Florida, I got a call from a headhunter and there was a nuclear renaissance about uh, getting civil engineers and getting them into construction engineering for these power plants they were going to start building over the next 10, 15 years. So the job basically went from making 38000 to taking a chance, moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I went from 32000 or 38000 in one year to 72000 the next year. And then from 72, hadn't looked back. I think our household income last year was probably over 260000 between my wife and I. So, so say that income level again. So we started at 38000 fresh out of school, single guy, and moved down to Jacksonville, Florida, and then got an opportunity to start working in the nuclear field. So moved from Jacksonville, making $38,000, $40,000 a year, to Charlotte, North Carolina, making 72000 a year. And then that was 2002. So since 2002, the minimum's been 72000 And I think last year, 260000 Wow. Wow. Yes. Way to go. Yes. Just staying go. in the same field. Uh, I remember the everyday millionaires used to talk about engineers, teachers, accountants. You know, there were like three or four professions that they stay employed. They, you know, they get raises. So, my wife's a teacher. I'm an engineer. So we've both been gainfully employed through all this time, uh, not really having layoffs. I had a project that shut down for maybe two weeks, three weeks, but I had savings, just stayed at home and then another job picked right up. So we just, you just keep going. But it's, it's just really, that's a big thing too. I try to instill in the younger people about making sure they get a degree that is marketable in the workplace. Uh, you just can't get a English degree and work at Target with $100,000 in debt. You got, you got to get something that is marketable in the workplace that you can get out here and stay gainfully employed, invest in your 401k, and you'll be offset. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, Dave Ramsey talks about not getting a degree in German polka history, right? <laughs> yeah, <no>. underwater <laughs> basket weaving or something. Yeah, like that. basket weaving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, Jermaine, as the income has grown through the years, has the savings rate increased, and has the the uh, lifestyle increased? I think yes. The answer is yes. The savings increased. There was a little lifestyle creep. Uh, like I said, we 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 live in our same home. We've been there for 15 years, but there's been purchased vehicles. Uh, my wife loves the Nissan Altima. So she's had a 98 Altima. She's had a 08 Altima and a 2013 Altima, which is the car she has now. So we try to make sure you need a car. Do you want a car? She care less about a car. Just get she, from she just emailed us saying that she wants a Tesla, actually. <laughs> well, let me get to my side of the story. So <laughs> I've, I've purchased a uh, Chevy Impala. I've had a Avalon. I've had a Dodge Challenger. Still on the Challenger. Toyota Camry. And for my 50th, I spoiled myself with a Tesla Model 3. Ooh, that's I, what I'm talking about. I didn't think I was going to hear that, even if you, after you said wait for my stuff. 
There you go. Yeah, yes, yes. So I hear people talk about, you know, oh, should I do it? Should I not? Once I paid off my home, I said, you know what? This is it. I am halfway to 100. If not now, when am I going to purchase this vehicle? So I purchased a Tesla Model 3. I bought it actually used and it had probably, it was more like a demo. It had 1,200 miles on it. So I got all the warranties and I love that car. Just got the wall charger installed in the garage. So I'm charging at home. How much was that? that. that now that yes, that was my most. Uh, the install was five hundred uh, for the charger, and I want to say the electric uh, company that I use for the labor charged me another six or seven hundred, so probably twelve hundred uh, out of pocket to have it installed but i really enjoy that car like i said the technology the um uh, the infrastructure with the superchargers I, I drive a light a lot for work so uh driving you know down to georgia or south carolina always a place to stop charge up uh, hadn't spent over seven dollars charging up so the supercharger 10 15 minutes seven bucks and you're back on the road so it's it's a it's a great car but i said if not now When's the time you you have no mortgage? Get to your car. So I, I went ahead and purchased it, and I'm assuming it was totally worth it. Yes, totally worth it. I love that thing. The first day I was driving to work, I just wanted to pass the exit and just keep driving to the next charging station. And just my brother lives in <laughs> Dallas, Texas. I was just going to drive all the way down to him and just stop at Superchargers and show him how wonderful this car was. But yeah, <laughs> I'm just really enjoying it, guys. I'm really enjoying it. It's just one of those things that I said, you know what? It's time. Spoil yourself. I remember my wife seeing a uh, older gentleman at a restaurant in a Corvette. And she had complimented him on his Corvette, said, oh, if my husband was here, he'd love it, blah, blah, blah. And he had told her, tell your husband, don't wait till you get my age to buy your car, your sports car. Because I don't know if he was having issues getting in it or as you get older, you have knee problems. You know, those cars are low profile. So he, he made sure to let her know, to tell her husband, don't wait. You know, as soon as you can get those, go ahead and get them. You know, treat yourself. Clark, there you go, man. They can get you a Ferrari now. <laughs> Was that hard, Jermaine? Was it hard to pull the trigger on that? It it was hard. I had been looking and talking about the Teslas probably for two or three years. And I think I just needed to get to a point where you you were at peace that everything is okay. And when you don't have any more bills, when you don't have a mortgage, you know, I talk to people all the time. The word mortgage to me means payments until death. And that's just something you don't want, you know. So once you got to a sense of peace that, hey, everything's okay. All you're doing now is investing. You have a bridge account to save. And in the event we retire early uh, prior to 59 and a half, and we could use that money to live off of, pay capital gains or supplement your income if you work, you know, part time. But it was hard to pull the trigger. It really was. I'd, I'd been talking about a Tesla to my wife. I mean, every my whole family just got tired. They was just like, just let me know when you get it because you've been talking about this car for two or three years. So it was it was time. So, but it was a hard decision. And what was the total cost on that? Fifty one three, fifty one three, and that's the most expensive vehicle I purchased, and it was purchased after I paid off my home, and then the second to that was the Challenger back in 2013, which was $27,000. 
and I haven't had a car over $27,000. Awesome. So correct me if I'm wrong, Clark, but that's probably becoming the more, I guess the vehicle of choice or the most common vehicle amongst our millionaires is a Tesla now. It used to be all over the place, but I I think Tesla's come up more now than anything else before. What was, let me ask this, was it the technology or the look or the fact that it was electric and and you could save on gas that was appealing or or all of it? I I think it was all of it. I think it was the technology. I look at Elon Musk, who is someone who is my age, that vision, you know, SpaceX. I mean, this this guy's going to the moon. So, you know, if if he can do that, you know, the, the technology, the infrastructure, there's a supercharger about a mile from my home. And I would always go to the grocery store there and see all the Teslas and they're charging and just uh, driving around, uh, visit my uh, mom and stepdad down in Florida, superchargers at a, at a cafe. And it was just really like, wow. And then also with grandchildren and that legacy of, you know, let me do zero emission. So I call it Zoe, zero emission. So I call it Zoe. So I said, let me get a vehicle that I can show my grandkids that, hey, you know, I'm trying to do my part, you know, we recycle and, uh, you know, but to have an electric vehicle, to have something that you can charge at home. Once I get back home working in Charlotte, I'll be able to drive the car, go to work, come home and then charge it at night. You can set when you can charge it. So the, I think the, electricity rates are lower from, you know, 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. or something. So you can set it up to charge from two in the morning to five in the morning and have a fully charged vehicle when you hit the garage. So it just to me, that just says, you know, you're going to you're going to keep it uh, zero emissions, the electricity, the infrastructure. If you take it on a trip, you can always stop somewhere and charge it. And that's just to me, that's the future. And I just wanted to get in early, kind of felt like an iPhone. Uh, changing from like flip phones and back phones over the years. And that when the iPhone came out, it was just something that you wanted to get in early and just kind of grow with it. It's funny you bring that up because I, I don't own one, but I'm a, I'm a big fan. And I rented <laughs> one uh, on a recent trip and the license plates on it was like, basically it's Falcon Heavy. I mean, whatever they could fit the letters on. <laughs> and uh, I, I kid you not, man, everywhere I went, people were just oohing and on. And I'm like, man, I'm just renting this car. Like... <laughs> And they're asking what the license plate means. I'm like, hey, yeah, you got to go look at Elon a little bit more. You, you you know what Falcon Heavy is, but it's kind of funny how it's how it's kind of created, especially when you you know you pull into those superchargers, everybody's lined up. It's kind of like its own little cult in a way. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, a lot of the millionaires we have on the show that that is definitely becoming the car of choice for sure. And I think you hit the nail on the head for a lot of them that it's it's more about hey, this is part of the future. Whether it's Tesla or another brand, you know, we're we're headed that way at some point, um, you know, in terms of electric vehicles and just electric things in general, um, you know, we've progressed so much in that way. So appreciate you sharing that. So Jermaine, you've come on this journey, you've become a millionaire, you've got no debt, you've got the car of your dreams. Where, where do you go from here? I, it's all about legacy for me, guys. So now it's all about changing my family tree. You know, I've heard you guys talk about and on other uh, podcasts and what I've read in my magazines about how generational wealth is lost over three generations. So, you know, I talk about my, you know, 40, well, 
54,000 in student loan debt. You know, my daughter had, uh, my oldest daughter had 20,000 in student loan debt. So the next step is grandsons will have no debt. They will learn about money. We will just kind of continue with the legacy of of teaching my family about money, teaching other uh, friends and everybody else. So just the things that we've done and how we feel now and how I tell people now, you know, I work now just to stay in shape. You know, you go in, you see your regular people at work, you say hi to them, you work. But man, going into work with no mortgage is a totally different feeling. You know, work doesn't get a vote. If they want me to work a Sunday and I got something planned, guess what? I'm not working, guys. You know, work doesn't get a vote anymore, but it's something that you still... I. For me personally, it's something that you're still going to do, still going to work. It may may reduce the part time. I may even change career paths, kind of turn the chapter, so to speak, do some work with uh, giving. Uh, I I do a lot with men's shelter. Uh, Donors Choose is a big organization for teachers because my wife is a teacher. We always look at different schools and try to help out in our community, teachers purchasing supplies for their kids, a lot of that stuff, they have to pay out of their own pocket. So I just really learned a lot about just a legacy teaching my family. You know, my daughter has a, I think an Instagram about fitness, being a mom and finances. So she's kind of getting into it now. And, you know, she has no debt other than her mortgage. So we're just really trying to do the legacy One thing I talked about is tax saving strategies, you know, being 50 now, I just got my AARP card in the mail. So I'm, 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 uh, I'm getting up there. So, uh, tax saving strategies, (laughs) one one thing they talk about is that, you know, we, we learn all the time, save, invest, save, invest, but we really don't talk as much about the end game, you know, tax saving strategies, bridge account. So my goal is to have a bridge account that has, you know, maybe 500 to 700,000 in the next 15 years. That's something we can grow and, and, you know, utilize in the event that there's a surgery or, you know, somebody's off work or there's a rehab. You know, I've seen so many friends that get to 57, 58 and the stairs in the house no longer. They can, you know, go upstairs or their knee hurts. So they're talking about moving. So, you know, life is just going to change so much, I think, over the next uh, 15 years as you go 50, 55, 60, you know, Medicare at 65, uh, changing careers, uh, downsizing. So uh, one thing I did, I, I was left a small inheritance for my grandparents and I put it in my adult children's Roth and my grandson's 529. So I felt like that money will travel through the next couple of generations. Mm. Good for you. you know, That's neat. Yeah. It's so that money is guaranteed to move on with the next, you know, with, with three generations. So I, I just thought that was something we needed to do. But yeah, so right now I'm going to continue to save. What I've been doing is I've been putting my mortgage payment into the bridge account every day. And then tax saving strategies. What I've done this year is I've uh, taken 33000 from a rollover IRA and moved it to a Roth IRA. Probably going to have to pay 8200 in taxes or whatever. And I'm just going to every year, maybe 20 to $30,000. And over the next uh, five to 10 years, just try to just go ahead and pay those taxes. I don't, I don't have any debt. So it's just going to be really easy to just, you know, pay that tax bill. And hopefully that money will grow uh, tax-free where I'll just only have to pay capital gains once I do need it and take it out. But your income could be lower in retirement, right? Since you don't have rental properties. Yes, yes, yes. And we, we really, uh, we, we thought about it, but you know, like I said, after the passing of Kobe, uh, we just got rid of our rentals. We had had rentals for 
three years, or excuse me, we had three rentals for about 15 to 18 years. And we bought a condo in 2002. So we weren't married. I bought that on my own. And back then, this was a no money down loans, $500 down. So we knew we were going to get married. We were pretty much engaged. Wife had the ring. So we bought the condo. And what we did is we moved into it. And then we had met a real estate agent who had told us, hey, you know, you guys could really build with real estate right now. Uh, since you guys are not married, your wife can go and buy a property right now on her credit report shows no property. So my wife went and bought a single family home in 2004, uh, brand new $112,000 starter home. And we moved into that. So once we moved into that property, we rented out the condo using this real estate agent who also had a property management company. So he was making money left and right from us. So he, you know, he could rent our properties out for us. We pay him the management fee. And then he was also our real estate uh, guy when we were purchasing home. So April 2004, we move into this home. I rent out the condo. And then back then, you could show I'm still not married. I rented out this property. And now I would like to purchase another property. So we found our third single family home that was in August of 2004. And it was a foreclosure. So I paid $80,000 for that home in 2004. And by that time, we got married in December 2004. So by the time we got married, we had three properties. We had uh, my wife's home that she had purchased when she was single. We, we were living there. And then we had two rentals that I had in my name. Uh, fast forward two more years. In August 2006, we purchased our quote unquote forever home. And that was the home that we, you know, we were going to be here. My wife loved it. We built it from the ground up brand new. And I think we paid two twenty eight for that home. And we moved in and then we rented out my wife's uh, property that we had bought back in 2004. So by you know, uh, 2006, we had had all this four properties, three of them rentals and a primary home. So it was just it was just really a lot. It was just really a lot. And I remember, too, us sitting down. So it must have been 2006. Uh, once we had had our primary home, our big home, quote unquote, we had sat down. And I remember us doing our bills and student loans and everything. And at that time, we had had over 700,000 in debt, probably around 2006, when you add up the four properties, uh, whatever we had for car loans at the time, whatever we had for stu my student loans. And it was it was just a lot. And, you know, it's always been on the forefront of keeping debt, keeping debt in mind, paying off bills, making sure you pay off things. We always say pay off things that don't come back. So you think of a car, you pay off a car payment um, or pay off a car loan, and then you drive that car for seven or eight years. Like I said, my Challenger is a 2013 it's eight years old. It's paid for, but it only has 63,000 miles on it. So, you know, put it in the garage. I drive it on Saturdays when I'm not at work. So just have a lot of fun with it. So, but yeah, it was just one of those things where you just saw the debt, but you had to keep the debt in mind, do a budget. And when the money comes in, you tell it where to go. So you don't wonder where it went. So that was, that was a lot of it of just making sure you kept the debt in focus. So why'd you get rid of the rentals? Like I said, I think that 
my wife was pretty much done. I started working on the road. So she would get a lot of calls. We got rid of our property manager after a couple of years of working with him. We felt like the fee we were paying him for brand new properties. The condo was brand new when we bought No. 2. My wife's uh, home that she bought prior to us getting married was brand new. And then uh, the the foreclosure that we also bought in 2004 prior to us getting married was maybe two years old. So there were no repairs. There were no, uh, uh, all we had to do is a pretty much lawn, lawn care, a maintenance, make sure the grass gets cut, but there were, there weren't any repairs. So there really wasn't anything he was managing other than he would get the check and take his 10% or 8% off the top and then send us the rest. So, and when, uh, 2020 came prior to COVID January, 2020 at the end, my wife is a big uh, Los Angeles Lakers fan. She's from California and Kobe Bryant passed away. And for her, she just said, man, you know, somebody who was younger than us, 41 years old. He, at the time, he was probably worth uh, $640, 650000000 million and to no longer be here. And I think her thing was, you know, why are we doing this? The goal is for us to uh, be financially comfortable, financially stable. Why not get rid of the rental properties? We had one that was paid for, yet we still had a mortgage on our primary home. So my wife said, let's sell everything. And that's my business partner. You know, I, as a, as a husband, my wife was my business partner, no other friends, family or anything else. So she says, sell, she's done with it. We put them on the market. We sold them all and paid off all our debt. And that was it. Well, you sold them at a good time. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We really, uh, we really did good that timing of the market. You know, we thought COVID hit and uh, most of our tenants, you know, very good tenants over that time had really good uh, cash flow. We'd always make sure we had mortgages that were if in the event we always looked at worst case scenario. If all three rentals are vacant, we could still pay the mortgage with our income. So we knew we could stay afloat till we got somebody in there to start paying them mortgages. But once we sold uh, the first property, which was my wife's uh, property, she bought, uh, we were able to sell that within seven days. And then the last two properties, foreclosure, we were able to sell. I think we had five offers the first day. And then the condo was the last one we sold, which is the oldest one we had since 2002. We sold that one in November of last year. And we had five or six offers the first day. So the market's red hot. She kind of talks now and says, man, if we'd have waited till this year, probably would have made another sixty, $70,000. <laughs> you know, we were landlords for 18 years. So, you know, you, you to heck with the cheese. Let me out the trap. I'm done. Thank you very much. Have a good day. So I, I think we're fine. Yeah. So Jermaine, who had the biggest influence on you in your life? Oh, definitely my parents. Uh, I would say my uh, mom and stepdad who uh, live in Florida. My stepfather gave me a book back in the 90s. I want to say it was a Charles Givens make money in the market or it was some kind of uh, thick financial book, but it was a, it was, I remember it was Charles Gibbons and it was just ways to save money and uh, put money away for retirement. And I want to say that that book was a uh, more wealth without risk or something like that, but it was about 400 pages and you would just read through all these different things. Uh, my father who also, you know, worked hard and he was also always about saving and buy a house and, you know, don't have a lot of debt and pay things off. So uh, definitely my parents were big 
big on um, on uh, just instilling in me that you know you and I saw how they lived too. You know, my mom she probably has it to this day, but she kept uh, like an accounting ledger book where she would keep track of when she got paid and uh, what bills, what she spent for food, what she spent for rent or mortgage and those kind of things. And I do that now. You know, my wife and I we get together, we do budget meetings, quote unquote. Uh, she's good at Excel. We do the spreadsheet. We talk about what bills are coming up this month. And, you know, after you start writing it down, it gets very easy to kind of keep up with, you know, it, it's okay. It's, oh, do you have any birthdays? We're going on any trips. We're doing this. Oh, uh, such and such. We got a graduation. We need to uh, send a gift to. So you just kind of look ahead over the next month or two of what's coming up and uh, you're able to budget, you know, how much our gas costs for our, our gas vehicles. Um, so yeah, we just, we just really, uh, that that's that's really what happens is just you know your parents I, I just really think it starts at home so my parents were big on uh saving and investing so jermaine let's wrap up with a, a few rapid fire questions you mentioned the most expensive car you've purchased already what about the most expensive meal out that you've paid for meal out probably uh steakhouse $215. Uh, wife and I's anniversary, one of our anniversaries, we went out. We thought that was a lot of money. 215 It's awesome, though. You remember it, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to remember it. That is a lot of money. <laughs> the, the, the $100 dinners, you forget. <laughs> but 215 you kind of feel that. Way. Yeah, you don't feel you it, right? Cash <laughs> yeah, yeah. You pay cash when you, you leave those Ben Franklins on the table. That's right. Whoa. That's right. What's the uh, most expensive vacation or experience that you've paid for or taken with the family? Let's see. I would probably say some of our cruises. Uh, I am the king of work-life balance. I've been on probably 15 cruises, 15 or so. I stopped counting, but we try to go on cruises with family. So uh, maybe $3,000 was probably our, our top. Uh, uh, maybe got a uh, junior suite or something that was higher up on the deck levels of the ship. So probably $3,000. Okay. And maybe you just answered this, but what's worth spending the money to you and what is not worth spending the money? For me personally, experiences, spend money on experiences. It is just, it is so much fun to, my wife is the social media director of our house. So she has Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, I don't have any of these accounts, but when she says, oh, look at this, this was from five years ago. And the pictures and the smiles, uh, uh, going places, visiting family and uh, holiday travel, uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, those kind of things. So always spending your money on experiences with your family. I think you'll always cherish. You know, we still look back at we have photo albums that our parents took pictures of us when we were younger. So I can show my children and grandchildren when I was a born and came home and two years old and a five-year-old birthday party and, you know, me uh, getting a bike for Christmas and those kind of things. So uh, just spending money on experiences and, and, and things you can cherish uh, later on in life. Things you wouldn't spend money on for me because I work construction. So I wear uh, steel toe boots. I wear a hard hat, safety vest, safety goggles. So I'm pretty much in jeans and 
uh, orange T-shirt or reflective vest every day uh, being out in the field. So I really don't buy a lot in clothes. You know, my my wife will spoil me and buy me stuff. But me, I'm on a clearance rack at Kohl's. I don't, I don't buy too much in, in, uh, in, in clothes. I just figure uh, the work itself out. Is there an experience or, or something out there that, that you're looking forward to that you haven't had yet? Well, I was going to, when you asked about uh, trips and uh, vacations, we did have uh, London, Paris, Rome scheduled for 2020. COVID hit, fully refunded, maybe going overseas, kind of traveling a little bit more. I think one thing about starting um, having children early is that you start young, you finish young. So as now I'm 50 and grandchildren are three and five, uh, as I get older and get to retirement, they'll grow older and then they'll start their own adult lives. So, but for right now, I'll be able to go to basketball games, hang out and this kind of thing. But as they get older, I'll start transitioning and they'll also start transitioning. So they'll go to college and, you know, kind of start leading their own lives. So, yeah, I just really uh, just really thankful that, you know, you make it this far. You know, I talk to my dad every day or or twice a week and he always says, man, if I'd have known him. I was going to live this long, you know, I'd have took better care of myself. So, you know, my dad is like almost 80. So it's just one of those things where you just keep getting up, meeting the sun and you're like, man, you know, today I'm 30, today I'm 40, today I'm 50, today I'm 55, today I'm 60. So just keep getting up, keep living. And wow, it happens. Life happens. Do do your friends and family know that you're a millionaire? I think, well, definitely my adult children, because they, they need to know where everything's at. Uh, where all the documents are. I don't really talk. I have a few friends, a few close buddies. We talk about it. They still have rental properties. And, uh, we told them we sold everything and got totally debt free and uh, just told them how we feel and why it worked for us. But yeah, I think my parents know and uh, that's that's really about it. But no, not didn't didn't have a uh, didn't have a party or anything. Just pretty much just got together with my uh, adult children, let them know, and and that was it. That's why you came on our podcast, do the million dollar holler. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to come on and and just kind of tell my story and let people know, you know, you can do it. You can do it. I've I've done everything backwards. I've like I said, I've had leases and thirty year mortgages and and this that and the other thing. And it's just like man, I four one k loans and you're paying it back. You think you'll pay it back. You're paying yourself interest. And then the company gets bought by another company and it's due in 30 days. And you're like, man, I can't pay this back. So all these things that you think are going to happen good for you. And then it's another obstacle in the road. But I know if I can do it, anybody can do it. Well, Jermaine, I think you summed it up pretty well there. Really appreciate you coming on the show. It's Jermaine with a net worth over $1.6 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thank you guys. Appreciate all you do. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.